This is a Triple J podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. You know, there's always one thing you hear when we talk about welfare payments in Australia and calls for them to increase. Why don't they just go get a job? Maybe you've thought this as well. Why should job seeker payments increase? Won't it just encourage people to stay unemployed? Is it as simple as that? In a bit we're getting into the issue, you're going to hear from someone struggling to find work while living below the poverty line. Later, winners or cheaters? Our cricketers are being hammered at the moment over a controversy at the Ashes. We're going to unpack all of that as well. I'm keen to hear so many opinions on that. First, though. Hack. It will help recognise early signs that a young person's mental health is at risk. On Triple J. Young Australians battle mental health problems more than any other age group. It's estimated about two in five Aussies between 16 and 24 have lived with a mental health disorder. And it actually could be a lot higher than that now because the research is from a few years ago. So imagine if you could get a scan of your brain as a teenager and it would predict whether or not you'll suffer mental health conditions in the future. Does that sound crazy? Because it could be around the corner. Some Australian researchers think so. They've been looking at what they call brain fingerprinting for years. They're doing this long-term study into it with a whole bunch of young people. And a group of these young Australians have just finished their stint in the study after participating for five years, having regular brain scans. We're going to speak to one of those participants in a bit. But first, let's talk to Professor Daniel Hermans from the University of Sunshine Coast's Thompson Institute. It looks at mental health research. He's one of these researchers. Hey, Daniel, thanks for coming on Hack. Thanks for having me, Dave. It's great to be here. First up, what is brain fingerprinting? It sounds so (laughs) interesting. What exactly is it? Well, the idea of uh, drawing an analogy between the brain and brain patterns and a fingerprint is really about how unique or uh, individual our brain patterns or brain signatures are, hence the term brain fingerprinting. Can you explain how this study has played out? So uh, exactly what you're doing with these scans, how they work and what you've found so far, because it can get pretty confusing. Not all of us are brain experts, I guess, but if you were to simplify it a little bit, how has it worked? Sure. So fundamentally, it is a study of the adolescent brain and the development of the adolescent brain. But we also ask questions around mental health issues in particular. We ask questions about lifestyle factors as well, like sleep and physical activity and nutrition and social connectedness and and so on. And in addition to doing that, we are doing brain scans at the same time point. So what we're doing by doing that frequently is firstly, we're really interested in tracking the adolescent brain changes and then seeing whether they... Uh, can predict mental health outcomes. By doing this so frequently within individuals, many individuals, we can look at where the brain measures predict mental health outcomes. And indeed, we've already got some first evidence around that. So what, yeah, have you found? What are the indications so far? Well, a paper we published um, in NeuroImage last year, and we're still looking at um, other brain signatures or brain fingerprints, as we're calling them, with uh, other types of imaging right now, that the functional connectome, which is a measure of brain synchrony and brain organisation or brain networks, uh, we found that the uniqueness of this network predicted psychological distress four months later. Uh, in in these individuals. So those who had low levels of uniqueness in a particular network, a brain network associated with goal-directed behaviour and executive functioning, those that had low levels of uniqueness in that network 
had increased psychological distress four months later. And by the way, we did check whether there was an association between this uniqueness measure and psychological distress at the same time point, but that wasn't evident. So this is really important to, to have a brain measure that precedes a mental health outcome. Wow. Would you be able to only indicate four months ahead of time or is it possible to predict these things years out? I'd say both. So that this is a clue. It's the first clue we've got really. Uh, and we want to look for more brain signatures or brain fingerprints that are predicting outcomes in the shorter term and longer term. It seems incredible for anyone listening that this could be where we're heading in the future. Like I saw a comparison saying one day it could be like getting a screening for bowel cancer, <laughs> getting a brain scan and predicting potentially mental ill health. Is that a long bow to draw? <laughs> well, firstly, to clarify, that was uh, us that um, have made that analogy. So uh, um, off the back of the, uh, the neuroimage paper I mentioned, the brain fingerprinting idea, we did a webinar. So myself and a futurist called uh, Dr. Colin Russo, we talked about this concept about how far in the future are we away from something like brain scans being available to young people to help predict mental health outcomes. And the analogy with bowel cancer screening, we're just drawing an analogy about how a public health initiative like that, a test for people to, you know, at a given age, in this case above 50, to get a bowel cancer screen to predict the outcome, in this case cancer, it's no different to an, a future idea, an analogy uh, around a brain scan being done for, let's say, all 12-year-olds and then some sort of screening, if you like, for mental health risk. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Professor Daniel Hermans about brain fingerprinting and whether one day we could be able to use brain scans on teenagers to see if they're likely to develop mental health disorders later in life. Dan, when do most mental health problems appear? Is it teenagers? Yeah, great question. Yeah, we, we know for some time that around 50% of major mental disorders have their onset before 14 years of age. And around three quarters, 75% of them will have their onset by 24, 25 years of age. In a child brain, there's a lot of growth. The brain is basically learning a lot of information and growing in size. But what happens around the time of puberty, around the time of 12 or 13 years of age, the beginning of adolescence, the brain starts becoming more and more specialised. We actually see a process called pruning which is where grey matter or the, you know, the neurons, the, the basic building blocks of the brain, if you like, the, the nerve cells, they're actually pruning off and we're retaining the ones that we really think are important, I guess, or that we, our brain needs. The grey matter is reducing throughout adolescence. And the other thing that's happening is white matter, which is like the insulation around neural connections, that's increasing, making the brain more efficient and faster. So we're talking about adolescent brain development as being the most dynamic period. So there's something about that that we think is related to the onset and risk of mental health problems. Yeah, because I guess a lot of people listening would be wondering, why is it that some people develop mental health disorders and some people don't? Well, it's a lot of things. I guess the simple answer is it would be environment and biology, I guess, uh, nature and nurture. Uh, so things, traumatic experiences, uh, other things that shape us as we um, develop. But in terms of the biology or the nature, we think that the underlying neurobiology is critical. So that is you know, the brain processes that are taking place. Uh, we know that the adolescent brain is highly plastic or neuroplastic. And while that's primarily a good thing, 
because we're learning through new experiences, we're establishing social connections, actually becoming more and more individual or unique. It's also a time of risk because of that change that's taking place. Dan, there's not only a really personal cost of mental ill health, but it's financial as well. Like it costs the country a lot of money. How beneficial do you think it would be helping people discover things about their mental health earlier on in life? Well, it's huge. Uh, National Productivity Commission report estimates around the cost of uh, mental health problems to Australia being in the order of $200, $220 million a day. Uh, and we also know from other studies around the world that childhood and adolescent onset mental disorders cost 10 times more than uh, adult onset disorders. So the costs are huge. We are hoping in the not too distant future we'll be in a situation where a young person and their family could have a, um, you know, a report predicting risk. Uh, so we, we also know from so many other areas of research that there's a lot of lifestyle interventions that we can implement. So, for example, if you know that there's a level of risk in the future, then you can make changes to, for example, sleep or nutrition or physical activity that we do know have impacts on brain health and therefore mental health, as opposed to you know, the other way that we've approached this for decades, interventions like psychotropic medications, pharmaceuticals that do have side effects and other issues. There's probably people listening now thinking, why do we need brain scans to tell us information about people's mental health? Why don't we just talk to them? Yeah, it's a great question, Dave. Uh, firstly, I have to stress that if we're doing brain fingerprinting, brain scans, you would always be also asking people questions and you need the two sources of information to come to these you know, conclusions to make those predictions. But another point I'd make is when people are telling, say, clinicians or researchers about their thoughts and feelings, there are some inherent issues around that. It's inherently a subjective thing. Some people may not be able to best express how they feel or describe things that have happened to them in their lives. So a great example would be someone who's experiencing trauma. That might be repressed or, or blocked in some way. So that's one issue. And similarly, clinicians, despite years and years of experience, may not quite ask the right questions or, or, or drill down to you know, the right uh, questions and therefore answers. So the inherent subjectivity that comes from asking people about their thoughts and feelings about their life is an issue. Do you think another important part of this is validating what people are hearing in the sense that when you have a brain scan and you can show someone, look, we can see it here. Yeah. We can see this is the reason rather than just people talking about it or telling you what's going on in, in your mind without any real tangible evidence. I don't know. Does that make a difference oh, as well? Absolutely. Absolutely. That addresses stigma. Uh, and uh, you know, one analogy or an example I'd make around that was my first area of research, which was attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And uh, around that time, and I think to some extent it still exists, there was say more popular media interpretations of things like ADHD being to do with parenting or conduct issues and school issues and so on. My point being that parents and young people themselves, uh, I think they have that sense of relief when there's discussions and explanations from a biological point of view, when they have evidence that's brain-based in the biology, um, but you need both. It's about marrying these sources of information together. 
We appreciate you breaking it down. Professor Daniel Hermans from the University of the Sunshine Coast, thank you very much for joining us on Hack. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We do have a lot of messages coming through. Some people, you know, really behind this kind of concept. Others raising questions about, you know, how people in remoter areas of the country would access this, whether there'd be inequality. Let's have a chat to one of the people involved in this study. Jaya Eads is 17. She graduated today, I guess you could say, from this brain scan study after you know, um, doing it for five years and she's with me now. G'day, Jaya. Thanks for coming on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me. So basically you've finished your five years on this huge, big study. A whole bunch of other people will now get involved and they'll start their journey. How does it feel to wrap up after so many years? Oh, it's a bit sad. You know, I really enjoyed doing the study and I'll probably miss it now. It was really great. I used to get to go in and see if I'd grown any taller which I never did, but <laughs> that's okay. <laughs> and it, yeah, it was really great just to see how my brain changes. Does it make you more interested in mental health, in brains in general? Like now you kind of like, oh, I've watched this for so many years. I want to keep learning about this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, I have an interest in going into psychology next year. I'm not sure, you know, I'm weighing up whether I should do it, but it definitely seems really interesting from being a part of the study and getting to see, you know, research that they they do and their findings from it. Yeah. Did it mean you were thinking more about your mental health being part of the study? Yeah, definitely. Well, I got to see like firsthand when I got my results. If I hadn't had much sleep the night before, I'd go in and do a test and, you know, it'll come back really bad. So, you know, you can see that there's direct links from the way you treat your body to the results you get. Did they present you with something for finishing the study? What did you get? Yeah, so at the end of my study, my five-year study, I got a 3D printed brain. Um, so it's unique to my brain. Wow, that's so wild. So is, yeah, it, yeah. is it the same size as your actual brain? Is it something you can just like chuck in your room or something? Yeah, no, it's a little bit smaller. So I hope it's not the size of my actual brain. Um. <laughs> and I guess how does it feel to be part of something that could lead to incredible developments that will affect people all around the world that could see us be able to predict mental health conditions in the future? It's pretty cool, you know, to be able to know that I've been a part of that. It's really cool. It's something that not many um, adolescents would get to experience doing a study like this. And it's really great to know that um, I've been able to help people in the future with mental health problems. Well, hey, uh, we appreciate you speaking with us, Jaya Eads. Congratulations for finishing. Thank you. And good luck with all your studies ahead. Thank you so much for joining us on Hack. Thank you so much. It's a lot of messages coming through. Someone says, as someone who's been dependent on antidepressants since teenage years and now struggles with the financial burden, this would be so important to my future and the future of others. Another person, though, says, could this just create this self-fulfilling bias? You become anxious about becoming unwell. It's an interesting point. And another person saying, yeah, I'm worried about it being used to limit employment or educational opportunities or actually increase stigma. Look, there's a lot of opinions on this one, but it's fascinating. Fascinating research. We'll keep you posted. Hack. Well, I'd like to see a lot of them get off their backsides and go and start working. On Triple Jack. Dole bludgers, welfare cheats. 
You hear these names thrown around a lot when we talk about calls to raise things like JobSeeker. And it was no different when the government announced it was increasing welfare payments in the budget this year. Some of you were outraged, saying people should stop being lazy, milking the system, just get a job. Look, there are obviously people out there who do get caught doing the wrong thing. There are others, though, who say they're struggling to get back into the workforce. So what's it like when you're looking for work while living under the poverty line? Maybe when you're living with a disability or there's a major barrier making things harder. Our reporter, Kimberly Price, has been looking into it. When you got a job, how did you get it? You need reliable transport to get to the interview and then to get to the job. You need clothes, you need decent shoes, you need maybe some tickets, you need a decent meal, a good night's sleep. All of these things that are incredibly inaccessible when you're living on half of the poverty line. Meet Catherine Kane. She's part of the Australian Unemployed Workers Union. One of the reasons we found that during the beginning days of the pandemic when the rate of at least a couple of the payments like JobSeeker was dramatically improved up to the poverty line was that a lot of people managed to get jobs because they had the money to. Catherine is on welfare payments herself and fights for change. We're always going to have unemployed people. We're always going to have disabled people. We're always going to have carers. We're always going to have students. And we've just decided for fiscal reasons that those people should be starving to death. Like, that's a terrible reality. When you put it like that, there's actually a lot of steps it takes to get a job. And if one or multiple of those aren't there, it can get harder and harder to find work. I met Layla in a cafe. She told me she was on youth allowance and rent assistance. And getting out and socialising with friends was a bit of a luxury. I haven't done that for months. I've hung out with friends for coffee and things, but a lot of that does come up because one of us has had our payments cut, had a life crisis or things like that. She's heard time and time again that she should just get a job. But Layla has Marfan syndrome, a disability limiting her movement and means she uses a stick to get around. She's also trans and growing up, she had a pretty rough time. She left home at 18 and got into a TAFE course, but having to find a place to live, provide completely for herself and manage her disability, studying became too much. Layla gets $806 a fortnight from the government. 400 bucks of that goes straight to rent. And then there's $400 for bills, groceries, transport, her medication and just general living. I have $28 a day after rent roughly and I kind of just have a little meter in my head every day thinking, how much of that do I have left? But no matter how many times she explains her situations, there's always people who tell her to get a job. It's coming from an assumption that people have the social connections to need a job. They've been able to study and get the qualifications they need to get that job, which just isn't true. In May, the federal government's budget announced they'd be increasing Layla's payments by $40 a fortnight. When we spoke about this on Hack, our text line was filled with people saying those on welfare payments should just get a job. When Layla found out her payments were increasing, she burst into tears. It's like, sure, short term, that plus my rent assistance is going to be just under $5 a day. But again, my rent's probably going to go up, energy bills. To pay her bills, Layla cuts vital costs, like not getting her medication or only having one meal a day. But she sees an easy solution to increase government welfare payments to the same as or above 
the poverty line. You can't really tell people to do something and not give them the material resources to do that. Layla isn't alone. The 2022 Poverty in Australia snapshot report found 3.3 million people were living below the poverty line, including almost 17% of children. The poverty line is the bare minimum you need to function in the Australian economy. If you have less, you're in poverty. In dollar figures, the poverty line works out to be $489 a week for a single adult. And remember, Layla's payments worked out to her getting $403 a week. As of March, there were 145,000 people under 25 on JobSeeker or Youth Allowance. When Catherine first heard about the federal budget's welfare increase, she says she wasn't surprised. But my first thought was, people are going to die. I really wish I was being hyperbolic there. The reality is that this level of poverty kills people. Layla's 22nd birthday is in August. Then she'll be moved to the adult welfare payment scheme, something she's pretty nervous about. But Layla doesn't see things changing. No matter how much noise is drummed up, she reckons the government isn't listening. Because if they were, they would have made the changes in the May budget. I don't see a future for myself. I see my health declining unnecessarily faster than it needs to. My chronic illness getting worse, new symptoms coming up until I just eventually die. Like, I don't really see anything beyond that. Hack on Triple J. Kimberly Price with that story got some messages coming through, different opinions. Amy says there are thousands of jobs out there. People just need to stop being so fussy about what job they do. Then another person, I'm autistic. I have a casual job, usually 15 to 20 hours a week. But for about a third of the year, I get as little as five hours because my work's unavoidably seasonal. I'm on job seeker because I can't get the assessments I need for the disability support pension. Another person says not accepting job seeker would have left me dead or in jail by this point. All right, time to move on. Have you ever known an atmosphere like that or scenes like that in the long run? Verbal and even physical abuse was hurled at our players following a controversial dismissal. Would I want to potentially win a game with something like that happening? It would be no. It's pretty disrespectful, to be honest. I just expect a lot better from the members. The Australian Ashes victory is not in the spirit of cricket, says Sunak. Mr Albanese has tweeted that he's proud of our men's and women's cricket teams. He added, same old Aussies, always winning. Hack on Triple J. Yeah, the PM weighing in on this cricket controversy. What do you think? Because we also had the British leader, Rishi Sunak, had a bit to say. He reckons Australia's contravened the spirit of cricket. So what's happened here? Who's right? All of this criticism of Johnny Bairstow's dismissal at Lords on Sunday. If you're into cricket and you've been watching the Ashes, what is your take? What do you think of the Aussies being called cheaters and the English fans piling on? Message in 043975755. Already, already, sorry, got some messages coming through. Someone says, same old pommies, always whinging. Another one says, this is just the typical poms whinging again. Look, I think we're going to have a bit of a one-sided view, perhaps. That's what I'm predicting. But who knows? Let's ask someone who is all about this. Lachlan McCurdy's a sports writer, knows a lot about cricket. He writes for Code Sports. 
Hey, Lockie, thanks for coming on Hack. Anytime, Dave. Yeah, it's been a bit of an interesting uh, 48-hour news cycle in the world of cricket, that's for sure. It's been pretty wild. So let's paint a picture here. It's the second test, Australia's won the first test, final day, and then something happened that's blown up the cricket world. What happened? Why is this so controversial? So basically, you've got two batters at the crease, Johnny Bairstow and Ben Stokes, the English captain, and they're, they're batting really well, two very aggressive batters, and so the Aussies are trying to do whatever they can to get them out. Johnny Bairstow has... The Aussies have seen he's wandering out of his crease, which is the line that they've got a bat behind um, during a game. And the Aussies have noticed a trend of him kind of leaving the crease too early. And there's a rule in cricket that kind of once both teams sort of assume the ball's dead, the ball's dead, no wicket can be taken. The Aussies have, on the third time that he's done it, thrown the ball at the stumps. Alex Carey has thrown the ball straight at the stumps. So therefore the ball is not dead. Johnny Bairstow hasn't been watching. He's gone walking out of his crease and he's out of the crease Ball hits the stumps, he's gone, he's out, sends up to the umpire and the Aussies get the the big wicket that you could argue turned the match. Yeah, wow. I mean, so it's within the rules clearly, mm. but then we're hearing a lot from England about this not being in the spirit of cricket. Is that fair? Like, is this something that the England side have done themselves in the past? I think there's certainly the the argument about the spirit of cricket. So in the laws of the game, which is uh, put together by the MCC, which is at Lords, the home of cricket, which is where the match was being played, mm. there's a preamble essentially that says all these laws should be played, but also within the spirit of cricket, that it, they want to be the gentleman's game and all those sorts of things. But it's no set thing. And... There's been countless examples of, of the English cricket team. If you have a quick look on Twitter over the last 48 hours of people bringing up examples of Johnny Bairstow himself kind of using the stumping rule um, within reason and people like Ben Stokes and appealing for things, Stuart Broad appealing for things, Brendan McCullum when he was playing for New Zealand, now England coach, with some interesting appeals. So it happens all the time, let alone at grade cricket levels and things like that. It's a, a form of dismissal that happens all the time and it's it's kind of distracting from the back fact that Johnny Bairstow just wasn't concentrating. Yeah, look, it's definitely controversial. We've got a lot of people talking. It's pretty wild when you've got world leaders weighing in. <laughs> We've got someone on the text line saying, I thought it was a dog act, but it wasn't the reason the English lost. Another person and says it's been established as within the rules and both the English wicketkeeper and their coach have both been proven to have attempted the same thing. Mm. Case closed. That was from James. There's a lot of back and forth between the two sides, obviously. How serious, though, is it, Lockie, having the word cheaters pushed on the Aussies? It's an interesting one because obviously there's this reputation that happened since the incident with um, the sandpaper in, in Cape Town in 2018 and it's something that the Aussies have worked hard to try and, and get rid of because they brought in a new coach to lead sort of a new regime, I guess, of the Australian cricket team. They play their cricket fair and with mateship and I, I think there was a part where the day before there was a controversial Mitchell Stark catch that got disallowed and that's kind of been referenced as, oh, well, they wanted to play within the, the rules of the game or the laws of the game. We will too. So it felt a little bit back and forth and you could potentially argue that it wasn't quite the, the standard that the Aussies have been playing to lately, but they're well within their rights to play that way if, if they think that's going to get them an advantage in the game. And then what happened afterwards? Because there was a whole bunch mm. of commentary about the Australians really being heckled to a pretty extreme point. 
So at Lords, when you go through to the players' dressing rooms, you've got to basically walk through what's called the long room. It's where the MCC members they sit in their yellow and red jackets, and it's it's a very old tradition in cricket, and it's one of the few places that it happens. And clearly, it was going to be hostile because the crowd was booing as soon as it happened. And walking through there, the Aussies were have claimed that they were tried to be tripped up by a few players, and we we saw the footage of um, Usman Khawaja kind of pointing out a few people in particular that clearly there was some words said. He kind of later said there was some really distressing things that he heard and he had to point them out and we've had three MCC members they've been suspended um, indefinitely as they kind of induct an investigation so it's no matter what happens on the field it's really disappointing to see that the players or the the people who have bought tickets to be there feel like they can have that kind of response yeah for sure I mean no one likes to see any of that on the text line more opinions someone says I got an uncomfortable feeling when it happened I guess that was the spirit in me Mm. another person says the poms made the rules and can't take it when they lose (laughs) so they call it the spirit of the game (laughs) that was from flogs another person says cricket yawn I think I'll watch the grass grow calm Come on, come on. The Aussies are 2-0 up. It's great timing to love cricket. <laughs> well, I was going to ask, what happens now? Like, how many tests to go? What are we expecting from the rest? So there's three more tests to go. And so basically the Aussies are 2-0 up in the series. They just have to not lose one of them, so draw or win, and they retain the Ashes. If they win one more, then they win the Ashes, which would be a, a pretty monumental achievement because not many Aussie teams go over to England and, and win a test series. It's a hard place to go. So they're in a very good spot. And I think, unfortunately, this is kind of downplaying how good the Aussies have played in the last two tests because it's not easy to win back-to-back tests in England and that's exactly what Pat Cummins and his side have done. And Lockie, just quickly, both the Australian and the British PMs have weighed (laughs) in on this. Like, it's a big international issue now, supporting their teams, as you would expect. Is it pretty unusual for a cricket story to blow up like this? Like, obviously, we've seen big scandals in the past, but what do you reckon? Yeah, absolutely. And it's always the the people who try and champion that we've got to keep politics out of sport, but they... It's just not going to happen. And when you get Rishi Sunak saying what he did through a spokesperson, it's just not necessary because it's something that needed to be left in the cricket field. It was within the laws and it's just how it should be played. Hey, we appreciate your take on all of this. You're an expert. You'll be watching the rest. I imagine you'll be updating us. Sports writer Lockie McCurdy, thank you so much for coming on Hack. Anytime, Dave. And we've got some more messages coming through. Someone says, oh, my God, whingy sore losers. We play by the rules. Another person says they should be thanking Australia for curing one of their batsmen of a really bad habit that he shouldn't have. (laughs) Says someone else. We've got so many uh, thoughts coming through on this one. Another person says, not worth the airtime. Aussies just schooled England and like Brexit, they're looking for excuses, but we still love them. And like football, it's a funny old game. And that is all we've got time for. A huge thank you to all our guests for another fascinating edition of Hack. I'll catch you next time. See ya. Hack on Triple Jack.